1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today, my guest is Matthew Polly, and we will be discussing his uh, book, Breaking the Tongue Language, Education, and Power in Soviet Ukraine, 1923
0: 1934. Hello, Matthew. Hello.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today my guest is Matthew Polly, and we will be discussing his uh, book Breaking the Tongue, Language, Education and Power in Soviet Ukraine, 1923-1934. Hello, Matthew.
0: Hello, thanks for having me. Uh,
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. So I know that you're currently in Odessa, Ukraine, on a Fulbright program. And would you tell us a little bit about your current research projects? What brought you to Ukraine?
0: Uh, So my current project is called uh, City of Children. Um, It's an investigation of the history of children's welfare in Odessa. Uh, I'm trying to do it over the 1917 divide. Uh, so, uh, investigating pre-revolutionary history of charity towards children, um, and then the Soviet uh, concern for the large number of orphan and semi-orphan children uh, that Soviet authorities confronted after after the civil war. Um, the Soviet records are rich, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, Vast, and uh, so I find myself in this. I'm here, here for one semester only. Mm-hmm. I find myself uh, concentrating very much on the, the Soviet periods period I know well from having written this this book that we're going to discuss uh, too. Uh, so the 1920s and, and 1930s is a period I feel I'm expert mm-hmm. in, uh, and I've been doing a great amount of work on that. But uh, uh, but I started the project actually st petersburg russia working in the russian historical archive there and looking at particular philanthropic institutions uh that were uh setting up children's shelters in odessa at the turn of the century
1: so currently you're in odessa and as a fulbright scholar you're affiliated with one of uh, the institutions in odessa but what's your map of traveling across ukraine
0: so I, I'm really in Odessa. I'm trying to stay as much as I can in Odessa. Oh, I, I find uh, that uh, you know, I have so much to go through in the oblast archive here. Um, that uh, although I had initial ambitions of, of going, uh, going around Ukraine a bit more, you know, as a historians, as, as historians, were sort of tethered to uh, to the archives, and and that's. How I feel in Odessa and they're quite hospitable to me here too. So I'm, I'm able to work relatively efficiently. The building itself is, is not in great shape, um, but the, the, the administrators of the archive are wonderfully open and, and helpful people. So I've uh, I found uh, that, uh, that, that there's reason to stay and, and work here uh, a fair amount. Um, I came I flew into Odessa, and I've been up and back and forth to Kyiv. I'll go up again to give a talk to the Institute of History under the Academy of Sciences um, in a couple weeks now to discuss this book as well. The latter part of the book, I was invited to go up and give that talk. But... Uh, beyond that trip to Kiev and then my family is going to come uh, later and uh, mm-hmm. my little girls see uh, see Ukraine for the first time and we'll go back up mm-hmm. to Kiev and, and see the Viva as well but beyond that here I sit in in Odessa trying to um, working in multiple places I'm working in the main Oblast archive and then there's also a branch archive that looks uh, that holds uh, records specifically for the Communist Party, the former Communist Party Archive, Um, and I work a lot in uh, the main scientific library here uh, as well, and I'm trying to see if I can get in to the SBU archive to look at some files of of educators who ran these children's buildings and uh, children's villages. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, and were subsequently arrested. Um, so we'll see if that mm-hmm. if that comes to fruition. But that's one of my ambitions as well. So there's plenty to keep me busy here for uh, for semesters, what I've found.
1: So, before we discuss your um, book, Breaking the Tongue, uh, would you tell us a little bit about your interest in Ukraine? Why Ukraine and how did this interest originate? I know that you mentioned uh, before we started the uh, interview that uh, you went to Ukraine as a high school student.
0: I did. I did shortly after Chernobyl. So, Mm. I think it must have been 87 or 88 it's the first time. I remember mean, it was a grand tour of the, the Soviet Union. I had a high school t- teacher that was fascinated with the Soviet Union. And mm-hmm. It was a rare opportunity to uh, to come and see the Soviet Union. So we traveled traveled around, but uh, Kiev was one of our stops, and I was immediately impressed by Kiev and and <laughs> and the greenness that is mm-hmm. Kiev, and, and was even more so at that time. It's just filled with parks, and, and it was relatively quiet uh, compared to, to Moscow. So I don't know. I found uh, Kiev comforting in a way after the hustle and bustle mm-hmm. of uh, of Moscow. Um, but you know, it's always a, it's never an easy question. I have a long ra- range uh, explanation. I, I lived as a child in. Uh, West Berlin and Vienna, both mm-hmm. cities close to the Eastern Bloc, and I traveled a lot in the Eastern Bloc with my family and uh, was perplexed as a, as a child what, why there was this difference between uh, uh, countries on uh, either side of a border. Um, and then I suppose Ukraine, uh, the, the, the humorous answer I like to give is that when I was in high school, I had a uh, test that was administered by my high school teacher. And one of the questions that was asked was what countries emerged um, from the first world war, uh, with their independence. And I, I answered Ukraine and he marked it as, as wrong. And so I had to go back and prove that indeed, <laughs> for a short period of time, Ukraine was, was indeed independent and kept on fighting for its independence between 1917 to 1921. So, so Ukraine uh, remained, uh, I mean, it was a, a fascination for me then. And I I guess the, the bug stuck with me um, my first year of graduate school and a seminar in Ukrainian history. And uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in, in graduate school. And, and this, uh, this seminar was eye-opening to me uh, in terms of uh, really uh, giving me an opportunity to, to engage the complexity of Ukrainian history in a much deeper way than I ever had. Uh, as an informal visitor to to Ukraine, and and through my sort of broad exposure as an undergraduate, I don't think I really understood <laughs> <laughs> what a complicated place Ukraine was, and, and you know, uh, it's uh, it's complexity I think um, uh, incites the curious, uh, and uh, and uh, I pursued that from. I, um, eventually ended up studying the Ukrainian language after taking turns in Russian and, and Polish. Uh, they didn't, uh, uh teach Ukrainian at my graduate institution at the time. So mm-hmm. I went to Lviv and studied Ukrainian there and then Harvard Ukrainian research Institute and, um, became fascinated with the Ukrainian language, mm-hmm. uh, as well, and, and, beauty of this language, uh, um, so. Well, uh, that's a that's a multi-valent uh, <laughs> response to the question. Right.
1: Well, thank yeah. you so much. That sounds fascinating. And uh, is the Ukrainian um, history a part of your teaching currently?
0: Uh, it is. I mean, I fold Ukraine uh, obviously into almost everything I, I, I teach if I get the chance. I have taught seminars, undergraduate seminars, uh, on Ukrainian history um and then uh, uh i teach our survey course on the history of the second world war and there's a huge emphasis on uh the war on the eastern front and most specifically on ukraine so my students who know nothing uh, uh really uh, very few would know anything about ukraine's uh participation in the war and and, um, and only slightly know slightly more know anything about the Soviet Union's uh, broader participation in the war so so uh, I bring it in where I can uh, into larger classes to students who don't particularly enroll in the courses in the course to take a course in Eastern European history they're going to get get it through me and and most are genuinely pleased um, to learn something, something new. And then I teach uh, history of Imperial Russia and I teach, um, that's a survey course. So we do a fair amount uh, on Ukraine there. And I also teach an upper level senior seminar on nationalism and national identity in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And obviously, we talk about Ukraine in that context, too. And then I've been trying to do more as this current project Shows uh, with history of childhood. Uh, So I teach a number of seminars related to the history of childhood and uh, we do um, a fair amount, I'd say, of history of childhood in in the Soviet Union generally
1: in that class. So uh, moving towards your publication, uh, Breaking the Tongue is a very impressive investigation that encompasses educational, political, social and cultural phenomena uh, that were shaping the formative years, um, not only of Soviet Ukraine, but the Soviet Union as well. And um, in your research, you carefully document what was going on in Ukraine in terms of language policy during the 1920s and 1930s. I would really like to start the discussion of this publication with the one of the concluding parts of this publication. Um, that was Chapter 14, Biographical and Informational Sketches. And um, uh, to say the least, it's the this part resonates with with terror i don't want to sound overdramatic but um the information <laughs> but the information that you provide there is really terrifying and here you compile them um, biographical sketches of those who this way or another were somehow involved into this very controversial process of language policy that was introduced in ukraine in the 1920s so do you mind if i just um um Reads, just uh, maybe just a few uh, uh, paragraphs from this part. Sure, please. Vasil Doha was a leading pedagogue and researcher at the Scientific Pedagogical Academy of Sciences. He was arrested as an alleged member of the Fictional uh, Union for the Liberation of Ukraine and sentenced to a three-year imprisonment outside the borders of Ukraine. His final fate is unknown. Volodymyr Durdukivsky, was the director of the Shevchenko First Ukrainian Gymnasium in Kiev? He was arrested in 1929 as an alleged member of the fictional Union for the Liberation of Ukraine and sentenced to an eight-year imprisonment. was released early, but then was subsequently re-arrested and executed in 1937. Um, Mikola Hrilovy was a leading Soviet Ukrainian writer and publicist. Um, in 1933, he committed suicide during the midst of a new campaign of political and cultural repression in Ukraine. Vladimir Zatonsky was a Communist Party figure. Uh, he, uh, re- uh, he was arrested in 1937 and later executed. And I just mentioned just a couple of those sketches that you included in this part. So what do we, what do sure. we, what, how do we make sense out of all these stories? Um, would you introduce us to what was going on in Soviet Ukraine during the period that you co- covered in your, in your uh, research?
0: Sure. So, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you read those because out, uh, I mean, they do in short form explain the conclusion, I suppose, to to my story. Um, there, there are many ways. An addendum to the book, right, designed to aid the reader uh, in, in making sense of what I uh, describe. So, um, so they're they're there. there, there uh, intentionally, I put them there intentionally to, to, to offer reference for the n- numerous names that readers confront as they, they read through the book. I think the larger story, I mean, I'm not, uh, I would not say my specialty is uh, writing history of repression and terror, right? The, the, there's a certain cadre of historians and that's all they do, Um But it is a necessary uh, and definitely definitive part of the story that I tell, which is about a program that the Communist Party certainly supported, and I believe believe sincerely uh, for a time, to promote uh, national culture and national languages. But they didn't have the political cadres uh, that um, that were they didn't have large numbers of committed Ukrainian speakers in the Communist Party who could um, promote the Ukrainian language throughout the Republic and so they in many ways were forced to rely on non-party educators and members of the national intelligentsia some of whom had been Quite opposed to Bolshevik rule, although um, by and large the vast majority of them were decidedly left um, and shared some of the aspirations of uh, of the communist uh, state in, in broad form. So, um, uh, the argument that I make in the in in the book is that the Communist Party relied on these uh, educators out of a necessity. Um, Although many of these educators uh, shared their own private suspicions about uh, communist power or the role of the party in Soviet Ukrainian um, life, they were nevertheless committed to this particular program and didn't see what the uh what the future for this program would hold, right? So they worked, I believe, quite genuinely and energetically to fulfill a program that uh that they were asked to carry out because they believed in it. Uh they had the skills uh to uh to accomplish a transformation of linguistic culture um in Ukraine um but the the party's trust in in these non-party educators and intellectuals was uh, limited, um, and uh, I try to. I mean, it's a highly detailed book, right? Where <laughs> I try to um, explain some of the the divisions that occur. Um, uh, but I guess I would say uh, the Communist Party was only willing to let them go so far, right? And they didn't um, fully uh, uh, allow these teachers and educators to, to um, pursue each of their, uh, their ambitions. Um, And there came a point in time where the party begins to worry about what is actually being taught specifically in the classroom, right? So the book focuses on, primary schools, that is elementary schools, and what is going on in these elementary schools. Um, And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that although this was certainly an important uh, policy, that is the transformation of linguistic culture and the promotion of non-Russian languages and non-Russian cultures, uh, it was very much decentralized. So in spite of its Political importance the decisions about how this policy was going to be implemented were given to um, Local education officials and then below them teachers and members of the ukrainian um, National intelligentsia, so uh, so (laughs) So the the program is handed over um, in in many ways in, in a daily sort of sense to people that didn't enjoy the full trust of the party. And and, um, because of its uh, decentralized nature, um, the party wasn't entirely sure what was happening um, in the classroom or what was what was resulting from this decision to push Ukrainian uh, culture specifically uh, in in the Soviet Ukrainian Republic.
1: So the official term for this process, just to clarify for our audience, is uh, Ukrainization yes and uh, well my uh right (laughs) and so my uh question um is about the origins of this process because on the one hand it may sound to to some quite paradoxical that we speaking about ukraine as a country either as a as a part of the ussr or just as a country itself but still, we're talking about the introduction of the Ukrainian language into this country. So, how, why, why was it necessary to introduce the Ukrainian language in Ukraine?
0: Right, well, they're not really introducing the Ukrainian language, right? The Ukrainian language uh, obviously uh, it exists, but it's being spoken primarily by... Um, uh, those uh, Ukrainians who live, live outside the main cities uh, of Ukraine not exclusively but by and large that's where the Ukrainian speaking population um, is. Uh and so uh, Ukrainian language is fully in my view uh, certainly now and, and even more so one could argue then uh, in the vast majority of the countryside uh, uh, a a vivid and uh, and widely used language um, the challenge comes I, I think from a number of um, for a number of reasons right so the first one and the most elementary of them is that there is a Ukrainian national revolution there are successive attempts by um Ukrainian leaders to create an independent Ukrainian state. It's a highly complicated history. The one that I think even specialists like myself get confused by, by the number of iterations of Ukrainian state and and its fortunes, but uh, nevertheless, it, it wasn't easy, um, for, uh, for the red army, um, uh, and, um, and for pro-Soviet Ukrainians or pro-Soviet um, residents of the provinces uh, of the Russian Empire that came to constitute Ukraine, it wasn't easy for them to secure uh, a firm political hold on Ukraine. So, so in one, at one level, this policy of Ukrainianization is a, is a gesture towards the, a reality that the the Bolsheviks and the Communist Party face thats that is that there is um, there is a an increasing tendency to identify oneself in national in national terms. Uh, the national movement wasn't strong enough to secure uh, Ukrainian independence permanently, but it's strong enough to to uh, to resist. Or at least impede repeated attempts to to um, to bring Ukraine into what eventually becomes the Soviet Union. Um, but the larger, so that's the sort of the I suppose most elementary explanation. The larger concern is really um, a recognition that the country is nearly eighty percent ethnically Ukrainian. By and large, this population speaks Ukrainian, and if they're going to um, uh, create a modern and industrialized portion uh, of the Soviet Union in Ukraine or space uh, uh, of the Soviet Union in Ukraine, then they need to um, make sure that uh, the labor force that is coming into the cities um, uh, is able to uh, adapt and, and readily operate within the environment of those cities. So it calls for most uh, pointedly, a transformation of the urban space, the creation of a, a Ukrainian speaking urban urban space to, to uh, in a way, facilitate the in-migration of Ukrainian peasants into the city were viewed as a necessary part of a labor force that is only going to grow over the course of time in industrial spaces. So, so it's about uh, transformation of the urban space. It's also about sort of the creation of a new modern uh, Ukrainian national culture that is not rooted in the countryside. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, everything has to change within the cities, and Ukrainianness or Ukrainian culture has to become associated. Really, with um, with the certainly the modernizing and industrializing aspirations of the communist party.
1: So, what contributed to this division between the uh, Ukrainian-speaking countryside and Russian-speaking city? What contributed to this uh, uh, difference uh, in terms of um, uh, population? Who would choose this or that? Quest, uh, this uh, this or that language? um is this correct to assume that um this uh, ukrainization policy was a part of what was going on under the russian empire all the decrees and all the regulations which were introduced by the russian empire to ban the ukrainian language we know the ams decree 1876 and then again there was some kind of uh, uh going back to that policy uh, by Stolypin's endeavors, again, to ban U- the Ukrainian language and to promote the Russian language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, so you're describing uh, sort of anti-Ukrainian laws that were enacted by mm-hmm.
0: successive czars and their servitors, which ensured that... the language of culture, the language of uh, the published word, by and large, uh, and for that matter, the language of the city and language of education uh, was Russian, right? There there was, um, there, generally speaking, there wasn't, there was very little possibility of gaining an education within the Russian Empire in the Ukrainian language, and certainly um, uh, you're not going to get it if you came came to the city seeking it. So, yeah, there are all sorts of uh, restrictions on the the use of Ukrainian. Um, the view, of course, for Russian imperial authorities, and this had um, broad sympathy in, in, in cities within Ukraine, was that, that Ukrainian Wasn't a real language; that it was a dialect of the Russian language, um, uh, and that if one was going to become, uh, if that was your aspiration as a recent migrant to the city in uh, in Imperial Russia in the 19th century, for example, you're going to become cultured, and you're going to switch over to the use to the use of uh, to the use of Russian. So, you know, um, uh, this book is in part um, also, I suppose, uh, an examination of um, what I feel this has been universally true for um, leaders of the Communist Party, but there was um, a logic among some that uh that they're writing a historical wrong right um and uh it's uh complicated i think to figure out um truly what the intentions of the party leadership uh as a whole were um but in general i try to make the argument that um uh which isn't novel it's been made by historians before me that um, there, even uh, among the leadership in Moscow, there was a committed uh, a, a attempt to support Ukrainianization and to support non Russian um, cultures uh, generally. And partly it's this notion that they were doing better than Russian imperial authorities had done before them, right? That, the Ukrainian nation had suffered under Russian imperial uh, authority, and they were correcting that past. But with a specific agenda in mind, that is, again, to make use of the fodder at their disposal, that is, uh, a labor force or potential labor force that spoke overwhelmingly Ukrainian in the, uh, in the borders of the uh, Soviet Ukrainian Republic.
1: Yeah, like uh, you mentioned, it's quite it's quite unclear what were the intentions, (laughs) real intentions uh, for this uh, process. For example, the showcase intent was probably to promote the Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. However, when it comes down to what groups were subjected to this uh, process, this clarity and this certainty becomes somewhat blurry. And uh, You mentioned the change in the um, the process overall when uh, Stalin was um, gaining power in the Soviet Union, and uh, the uh, overall tone uh, toward the uh changed because uh, I guess um, the question shifted to whether the Russian community um, could be subjected to the ukranization Is that is that somehow? Um, Right, the rhetoric
0: moves to, so, and you say at the outset, right, Ukrainianization never technically ends, but in my view, linguistic Ukrainianization is robbed of any bigger, really, at an earlier date than I think other historians have talked about. So I just focus in particular on this trial of, uh, of, of, uh, of members of the Ukrainian intellectual elite, including leading pedagogues. And, um, and, uh, and people like Dr. Kivsky, uh, very well-known, uh, primary school teachers right in what was called the union, uh, uh, for liberation of Ukraine. Um, so I, I think there, I think things change fundamentally there because these, all the people that are being placed on trial are committed Ukrainizers, um, And uh, and people, teachers, uh, particularly teachers sitting in provincial cities or towns who read of these uh, trials or of this particular trial and of this particular group that um, uh, didn't really exist, but was created to um, send a particular um, message that is um, be careful just um, how far you push Ukrainianization or remember that Ukrainianization is always under the party's uh, leadership and and decisions don't don't rest with you so in my view um, uh, this particular trial um, had a pedagogical intent of its own and and teachers took teachers who uh, some of whom certainly in provincial cities um, who were resisting He transferred to Ukrainian language instruction, um, but decided that it wasn't worth doing. The penalty for being too energetic in one's embrace of Ukrainianization and not knowing what the limits were Mm. uh, was high, right? The penalty for embracing it too zealously was high, whereas the penalty for not doing anything at all really wasn't significant. So there are all sorts of... uh, Exhortations for teachers to uh, use to first learn Ukrainian if they didn't know it already, and they were teaching in Ukrainian school, um, uh, and to improve their knowledge. and uh, And and teachers are told to do this. They're they're given uh, examinations uh, on occasion of their. Ukrainian language knowledge and also their knowledge of what was broadly called Ukrainian studies, so which meant not a concern for you know, Ukrainian folklore or culture, but knowledge of new progressive and modern uh, Ukrainian Soviet literature that demonstrate all these things, but they could repeatedly fail the exam without considerable, um, consequence. Um, and they also often post were able to postpone, uh, these sorts of exams. So here in Odessa, where I am now, uh, I wrote a chapter in the book on Odessa cause I, you know, I found mm-hmm. Odessa a fascinating place. Uh, in the central archives, there was a lot of uh, information about resistance to Ukrainianization in Southern Ukraine centered around Odessa. And for the first time I, I found an Odessa, um, Examples of these tests that teachers had to take to demonstrate the Ukrainian language knowledge. And um, the tests, I assume, were supposed to be marked on the basis of grammar and things along these Mm -hmm. lines, but they also had a political intent. So the number of the questions that they were asked were about their understanding of the political meaning of Ukrainianization. Did they understand? Uh, as teachers in Soviet schools why Ukrainianization was necessary and you know it's hard to judge as a historian but those those teachers who conceded that it was foolish to teach in Russian to Ukrainian speaking children uh, often got high marks on their, uh, their samples of written written work so and now um, uh, teachers recognized that that uh, that after 1930 even if the policy continued there's no point in pushing it too hard that uh, they could r- risk um, definite penalty by doing so right um, they could be dismissed they could be arrested mm-hmm. and uh, they could ultimately be exiled or executed for for alleged Participation in Ukrainian nationalist activity, so so the the Communist Party was worried that um, that Ukrainianization was leading to a tick up in um, in an embrace of separatist Ukrainian nationalism in the schools.
1: Yeah, I I found that aspect about nationalism is quite uh, interesting in this uh, research. I believe this. A concept of nationalism would be different in the context of the Ukraine of the 1920s and 1930s, uh, if compared to the context of, uh, for example, 2010 or 2016. Um, could you uh, could you elaborate a little bit on this concept of nationalism under the Ukrainianization or under the Soviet Union? So, what did nationalism mean to right. the Soviets, or what? I mean, uh, I, I guess
0: I'd say this: that national identification is good, right? That that the Soviets generally believed that um, that you had to pass through a pass-through stage of of uh, national identification before uh, and and that one had to become, uh, an informed modern citizen. And the only way to do that was through a language that you understood, which also called for an embrace of the national language. Right. Mm-hmm. But what you couldn't do was, uh, argue for example, the Ukrainian it was only for, I think, Ukrainians, which would be, I suppose, the most, uh, uh dark the darkest thing of all, but uh or or arguing that uh that Ukraine could um pursue a, a somewhat independent path towards socialism, independent from Moscow's leadership. And there were certainly voices Um, Along these lines, not arguing for a break necessarily from the Soviet Union, but arguing there are distinctive things in Ukraine uh, and distinctive challenges that the people as a whole in Ukraine, uh, whether they were ethnically Ukrainian or not, faced um, that 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 called for some allowance of a decentralization of political power. Right. And um, and some amount of. decision-making to to be invested in the republican uh leadership of soviet Ukraine and uh, of the uh ukrainian branch of the communist party so so uh but i mean there's there, there's the constant ghost i'd say in this story that i tell uh of 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 the ukrainian national or uh, the ukrainian revolution right so the people that are all to, put on trial for this Union for Liberation of Ukraine Um, many of them had some uh, affiliation with Ukrainian People's Republic it's one of these um, short-lived Ukrainian independent states Um, and they're accused of commemorating one of the leaders of that uh, state, Simon Pedlora um, accused of uh, collecting uh, money uh, uh, in his uh, honor after his his death. Of, um, so and and uh, and the the term that is often applied uh, to those that the Soviet uh, Communist Party accused of Ukrainian nationalism is uh, is Petlorist, right? So mm-hmm. it's a direct invocation of this very contested time between 1917. 1921 so so there's a they, they have something tangible that they can point to uh, uh, in terms of their understanding of what nationalism is the nas- nationalism is that thing that fought against us um, in the in the Civil War and I think there is a perpetual anxiety of that somehow reanimating itself now I, I should say that I, I, I found you know if you, you read some of the private some of these diaries mm, right. have been published of those um, uh, who were uh, accused of being members of the U- Union for Liberation of Ukraine. Um, the diary of its uh, alleged uh, leader, Sergei Efremov, uh, has been uh, published and it reveals certainly disenchantment with Soviet power, but it doesn't reveal anything along the lines of a nationalist conspiracy um designed to break away uh Ukraine from the Soviet Union. So and there's a tension. I, I and I think the the in many ways the it's a contradictory policy that uh is difficult to describe in in a two minute answer, right? But uh it takes mm-hmm. four hundred page some uh, book to, to describe about um, you know uh, this this intention to create a Ukrainian inflected modern industrial space but uh, an unwillingness to um, trust others to um, to build that state in the party's name even though the party was forced by circumstance to rely on such individuals for a time so so what the limits of Ukrainian national culture are in the 20s, I'd say, are uh, not, not know, involved in the policy. And I guess uh, I'd certainly like to emphasize, if I could, in, in my comments now, that I mean, I, I really, if you, if you take the, the time, as I do, did, to read through all these files, it's, it's difficult to come away with the conclusion that Ukrainianization was somehow false, right, Mm -hmm. or, uh, um, uh, um, uh, artificial, Mm -hmm. um, because (laughs) if it was, uh, immense amount of people spend an immense amount of time dedicating themselves to this effort and, and for a time they're given the space to do so. So, um,
1: was this process successful in your opinion?
0: Was it successful? Yeah. Um, so, I I would say, I, defi- I suppose it depends on what we define success uh, <laughs> as being. Obviously, it wasn't successful by the ambitions of the those who were most committed to Ukrainianization. Right. Everyone who is intimately tied. With the program of, uh, or at least most who are intimately tied with the program of Ukrainianization, meet a pretty bad uh, fate, right? Um, including, I mean, one of the as a graduate student, how I got involved in this project was really as a student of nationalism, not as a student of education. But I became aware, right, that all the all the commissars of education, or many of them, had become um, uh, victims of political repression. Uh, as a result of their involvement, partly uh, in Ukrainianization, so for these people, obviously Ukrainianization isn't successful, right? Um, uh, and I, I suppose, I guess, I, I have a uh, uh, as I understand Ukrainianization as and what it came to be over the course of the 1920s. Um, uh, I don't think one can argue that it's fulfilled in any measure of the word. That being said. Certainly, uh, there's a school of historians that argue, uh, and I don't entirely disagree with them, that uh, that, that in the Soviets did aid in the creation of something called Ukrainian national identity and Ukrainian national space. Um, and uh, I, I still believe that uh, if we're talking uh, about the year 1991, certainly that's true, right? Um, uh, when the uh, over 80% of the population votes for Ukrainian uh, independence and, and people recognize what the territory of Ukraine is. Now that is obviously in dispute um, as a result of the war that is going on in southeastern Ukraine, but, um, all the pre-conflict pre-2014 data suggests that, uh, that, uh, there, there's a, there was a firm commitment to the idea of Ukrainian territorial integrity, even in, uh, in, in southeastern Ukraine. So, um, it's gotten extremely conflict, uh, complicated, I think, um, um, It's not to deny that there isn't um, genuine, genuine separatist um, sentiment among some of the people fighting in southeastern Ukraine, but I think it's taken external factors to really question the notion of what is is territorial, what is the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and and partly, you know, I mean uh, that's, I suppose related to this study. I mean, I, I chose to. Dedicated chapter to Odessa uh, because Odessa uh, is—I argue that you know it's a, it's a multi-ethnic space in which um, Ukrainianness came to be accepted by a portion of the population. And I have examples of of, of Russian-speaking parents petitioning for um, the local education authorities to create Ukrainian schools because they see knowledge of Ukrainian as uh, a quality or as a um, skill that they believe their t- their children need to have in the future uh, Soviet Ukraine. So that's, to me, also an expression of where potentially this policy um, could have gone. But I also talk uh, in the last chapter a fair amount about the Donbass, um, and that is the area where the, the war is going on right now in mm-hmm. southeastern Ukraine. Um, and... Um, and you know it's uh, it's not an easy road for the ukrainianizers there uh, as well but there is a commitment on the part of those invested in the policy of ukrainization to also um promote ukrainian uh language uh in in industrial uh, and urban spaces in southeastern Ukraine. The argument's easier to make, obviously, when you go outside the cities again, but they're committed to trying to transform those spaces in southeastern Ukraine. So, so, so yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'd say uh, it's not successful in terms of uh, the understanding of the original architects of the policy and those entrusted uh, with implementing the policy. Um, but they're... The the fact that that uh, that Ukrainian language schools never entirely disappear, um, uh, and uh, Ukrainian national culture, even though it's marginalized to specific spaces, um, uh, Ukrainian national culture continues to be supported at some level by the state. Um, I suppose is in a way a legacy of this policy, but uh, I, I think I'm decidedly pessimistic by the end of the, the book and, and <laughs> in my tone, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the future might have, uh, might have been different.
1: Well, just one more question about your research. You also uh, extensively comment on the children's involvement into this uh, policy. Could you tell us just a little bit about that aspect of this um, of this process? <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I mean children's perspective is always difficult to get at. And mm-hmm. I struggle as a sort of burgeoning historian of childhood to talk about the children's perspective but in many ways we see their uh, their role through the lens of uh through the lens of institutions such as schools. So, um so uh I I focus on children quite obviously because they they're They are at the center of of my study in terms of of being the objects that are begging for transformation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So they're they're in these Ukrainian language schools as they're converting to full-scale Ukrainian language uh, in instruction. Um, And I, I think my concern for... Children um, happens. uh, Well, I mean, it's easy to explain for anybody writing a history of uh, of schools. uh, But um, uh, I try to make the argument that um, that there's such a penalty against the notion of um, forced Ukrainianization, right? Um, So. Um, there's a stricture against this. Certainly, you couldn't force ethnic Russians to speak Ukrainian. One of the aims of, it, or one of the, one of the defining aspects of ukrainization was a sort of sorting out of people by national affiliation. So I think Ukrainians were supposed to go to Ukrainian schools, ethnic Russians were supposed. In schools it was never that perfect but that's and uh, but that's how it was imagined national minorities were supposed to go to uh, schools that taught in their language what what the, the state thought should be their language of um, instruction um, but it became decidedly um, uh, tricky when one was de- with what to do with people who are ethnically Ukrainian but were members of the industrial working class or the proletariat right and who spoke Russian and they had been there for a generation and they they lived in a Russian-speaking city in Ukraine for some time um, uh, or their family before them and they spoke Russian so what to do about them if they are identified as ethnically Ukrainian um but uh speakers of russian and i make the argument in the book that that one of the ways to go around the prohibition against forced ukrainization was to uh was to ukrainize the that is to um, reorient the language uh the spoken language of their children um, in the schools. so that was one way to uh to i mean I suppose the the party could never forfeit the notion that the industrial labor class or the proletariat had to to speak Ukrainian. If it it didn't, then what was the whole point of the policy? Um, Laborers had – it was imagined in the end result of Ukraine. Organization would be in industrial areas and urban areas. People would be speaking Ukrainian. And uh, Mykola Skrypnyk, uh, the last commissar of education during my period of study, um, uh, 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 comes up with this tactic of, um, of uh, essentially doing a run around the parents. And um, if you identified uh, as ethnic. The ukrainian you were supposed to overcome the state's presumption um, that your child attend a ukrainian school so so uh there's a focus on children in that respect and then a larger argument is that um, you know children uh, become the objects of political contestation um uh, for the state for the communist party and for ukrainizers right so there is a concern about what actual lessons children are receiving in ukrainian language schools um the party doesn't entirely know and they're they're worried um there's a hope that um the children can right the wrongs of the ukrainian national intelligentsia right Um, uh, but there's also suspicion that they've become victims of their influence and i think this occasions the script uh as i put it of, of repression in ukraine so the people um, that are targeted in this Union uh, uh, for Liberation of Ukraine trial are people who had direct responsibility over the cultivation and education of children. And I think for that reason, they become highly vulnerable uh, to, uh, to the suspicions of the Communist Party and most certainly to the suspicions of the State Security Service or the KPAU.
1: Could we say that this kind of um, policy, either Ukrainianization or Russification, can be quite traumatizing for children in particular? Because uh, on the one hand, they are exposed to different languages. However, on the other hand, um, there are some other consequences, cultural and even mental, that are not that uh, positive. Um, so, w- would you comment on the uh, traumatizing, probably, facts of this kind of enforcement?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to uncover from the historical record, mm-hmm. right? It's Certainly from the archival record. Mm-hmm. What sort of uh, I think it's certainly valid and legitimate question: what What, <laughs> what are you supposed to think if you're going from uh, if you live in a city like Odessa and you live in a Russian-speaking home, but your ethnic well, Ukrainian. now you're being told to go to Ukrainian school where right. Ukrainian is the predominant language of instruction and your family doesn't speak that language at home and may, in fact, not want you to go to such a school, but the state is placing a, a immense pressure for you to attend such a school. So I, I don't know, uh, I can't give you a neat answer from the perspective of the child you is what teachers um, uh, are recorded to have said uh, according to educational inspectors and I mean teachers resisted to this as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, and some complain that this is causing confusion in the classroom Mm -hmm. children don't know what to make of it Um, but but there also is evidence that children you know um, uh, adjust relatively relatively quickly uh, if, uh, if given the, if given the time, I suppose, and also the commitment and energy of teachers who are willing to do this, I mean, but, but it all, it is, uh, it also is, I mean, that one of the other streams of the book that I talk a lot about sort of the Ukrainianization element, uh, and I've been asked to speak about it a fair amount here as well too but there's another strand to the book that is uh, this implementation of a quite progressive uh, pedagogy one of the things I found when I started doing the research is quite obviously Ukrainianization isn't the only thing that people are concerned about when they're concerned about schooling in this uh, period um, so teachers being asked to really radically transform the way they teach in the classroom not teach according to textbooks create their own modules for um learning and to rely also on uh initiative from children and that also creates confusion as well some children conceivably quite uh, responded quite well of course that was the aim of progressive pedagogy but but um but I, i i think i think i say at several points in the book that teachers and children i think should be included as well i didn't know what to make of what they were being asked to do, so um, so that doesn't um, that doesn't uh, preclude uh, the the reality uh, certainly that uh, that the archival record demonstrates that children did adjust and that some there there was an embrace by children, teachers, and parents of the transformation of the classroom to Ukrainian language instruction, but. Certainly, a portion of them had to be confused, uh, and uh, and uh, and as to what went on in the minds of any individual child, that's that's harder to say.
1: So, do you believe that those who advocated for the colonization and for the progressive pedagogy uh, really had some vision of some final results of these processes?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean.
1: Uh, <laughs> or they just had some idea what could be done in order to uh, in order to have this transition from the countryside to the urban um, life, and um, that's what they were doing.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think. Most certainly, when one talks, so the two the two things are separate, but they're also connected, progressive pedagogy and Ukrainian language instruction or national language uh, instruction. I think Ukrainianization is easier to say that they had, uh, that there was a committed group of both teachers and then above them, um, inspectors of education, local sections of education, and then above them, uh, people defining the policy in the Republican capital of Kharkiv, who had uh, certainly uh, uh, a dream of the realization of this idea. I don't think that's um, I don't think I, that's much in dispute. What what was what was going to be realized by progressive pedagogy is is harder to say. I mean, it's um, uh, it's a it was. Uh, it was a stream of, uh, of teaching that had been um, certainly advocated by those outside uh, the Soviet Union, advocated well before the creation of the Soviet Union, but it's still relatively new. And uh, the thought was that if you give teachers flexibility and you give students flexibility to learn, what they want to learn in the, uh, I suppose, or more importantly, in the way they want to learn, then they're going to achieve a better um, uh, learning learning outcome. Um, you know, by and large, uh, I think uh, teachers were simply not trained to do this. Uh, they didn't have the education to mm-hmm. sort of create their own uh, lessons plans and they're given very little direction and instruction. The whole thing is very, uh, as I make the claim, repeat the whole thing is very decentralized, and that applies to both the way children were taught and what language they were taught. Right. So um, the the creation of lesson plans is left open, really, to individual teachers, but then just above them, local education sections, and then. And just and, and the manner in which Ukrainianization was to be achieved is also very much left uh, on the local level. So one of the perplexing things that I found is, mm-hmm. you know, there's an absence of of trained Ukrainian speakers in certain parts of Ukraine and certainly in urban spaces. And one would think that. If the, uh, the center in, in this sense, uh, the center, I mean, Harkiv, the Republican capital, that is if the leaders of Soviet Ukraine were truly committed to carrying out the policy of Ukrainianization to the end, that there would be some coordination of the um, teacher labor force, right? So that if there's a surplus of Ukrainian language teachers, say, in the countryside around kiva uh, chikasi then that they then it will be transferred uh to places where ukrainian language skilled ukrainian language teachers um were needed and that didn't happen local education sections in the donbass area for example had to petition uh uh individually for teachers to come and negotiate individually with teachers and some and sometimes with local education Sections, but the whole thing is not coordinated um, from the the center. Uh, so I, while I don't question the intent to achieve Ukrainianization, there's a certain absurdity uh, to the way in which uh, it was carried out.
1: So, and uh, well, your current project is uh, dealing with children as well. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, it's about the Odessa region as well.
0: Yeah, so I, I, you know, as I said, I wrote this one chapter in the book on, on Odessa, and my first time in Odessa, I couldn't get in the Oblast Archive. This was many years ago. Um, uh, as I said, the Oblast Archive here is a wonderfully supportive place, but uh, but they don't have a lot of room. Mm-hmm. Um, for for readers and that remains true to this day so uh although eventually uh i was given permission to begin work there and i've been uh uh, very grateful uh for the support i've received since um the first time i was here uh, i couldn't get in so i contacted the university here the university that i'm now uh, affiliated with um and a, a member of the faculty took me on a sort of tour of Odessa with a insight into the history of education and he took me out to the site of the first children's uh, uh, village um, uh, named after the common term that was established in 1920 um, and uh, embraced sometimes in excess of 2,000 children, many of whom were orphaned but not exclusively. There were Children who had one surviving parent, and, and there were also cases of children attending um, uh, educational institutions in this children's village. was a conglomeration of different uh, different children's shelters that were all brought together on the um, on the grounds of the former uh, Cadet Academy. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, I visited this place I had never heard of it before it was new to me and then became aware of just how amazingly famous this place was and and they were practicing the sort of the same progressive pedagogy uh, but they had greater freedom I suppose to do it uh, because um, because there's the by and large the absence of parental from the from their uh, perspective the uh, absence of parental intervention in terms of what was being attempted in these in the educational institutions and it has some overlap with what I did before I mean children mm-hmm. were again divided by nationally nationality so there were for these um, children who live permanently on the grounds of this children's village um, they were housed in different buildings according to their nationality so there was a polish building there was a Ukrainian building and, and so on um, Uh, Anyhow, once I began starting working on this project, uh, I became aware of the immense amount of, um, of, uh, institutions like this dedicated to the care of, uh, children, um, and I also became aware of a much deeper history that stretched back before, before the revolution. So the problem of street children, Mm -hmm. um, has been a persistent one in Odessa and, uh, and it was only exacerbated by the first world war and the, the civil war and and then the famine, uh, that followed, uh, and, uh, Soviet authorities had to confront that challenge. Um, what is amazing I think is that, uh, that it has this larger history, right? And one of the things I'm trying to investigate is how much Soviet authorities are pulling on a previous experience, uh, late Imperial experience of, of, Caring for such vulnerable um, uh, children, Um, uh, but I I think the other thing is that you know it becomes it becomes a point of pride. The problem never goes away, and that's what I've encountered in files that I'm examining right now. So it's not just the early 20s; it persists well into the 30s, and the same issues seem to come up again and again in terms of the absence of funding, buildings falling down, children not having. As you would expect enough food clothing linens and things like that um but it's still particularly this one children's village or children's city sometimes I, I, the ukrainian word is a uh, russian word um, uh, 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 it becomes a um a place of pedagogical innovation and uh, and pride for local Odessa and educational authorities so, I just encountered last week documents from Intourist, right, the official Soviet um, uh, tourist agency, that uh, they're, they're recounting the um, possibility of an Ameri- uh, visit by American and Spanish tourists to Odessa, and the one thing above all that they have to see is this children's village. Um, so, so uh, it's a project that that runs parallel to my previous. Previous work on the history of schooling in Ukraine, but one you know, one never escapes. Uh, I think when one works in this area, the question of national identity um, and certainly Ukrainianization again pops up in these documents. But that's not my main intent. My main intent is really to to examine, you know, what the Soviets were doing with this children's population that was largely at their disposal to mold, right? And I don't mean that in, in, in a cynical way, but that, that was the reality. They had a very large children's population and, uh, and it's in spaces such, the, such as this, that they're trying to create, um, uh, skill built, uh, informed and future, future leaders of, uh, of Soviet Ukraine and the Soviet Union more broadly, but it has a connection, I think, to imperial past that is um, a preference for dealing with such um, vulnerable populations in an institutional manner, right? Housing them in rather large institutional settings. Um, uh, And then um, uh, also recognizing that this is uh, sort of a public security risk, right? Many of these children... Um, lives life on the streets and and um, engaged in petty thievery and, uh, and Soviet authorities, like their imperial predecessors, were worried about this, and they're worried apparently um, about um, you know what do foreign visitors think if they come and see um, uh, see such um, ragamuffins on the street right? So mm-hmm. the, the instinct is to put them in a controlled setting and to really make something uh, uh of their lives and to sh- could showcase what they're doing to foreign visitors that then come
1: well sounds very intriguing good luck on your current project
0: thank you very much appreciate thank- it
1: thank you so much matt thank you for this fascinating fascinating discussion of your of your book
0: you're quite welcome oh, thank you welcome the opportunity